once we were aware of the web addresses where they had uh, Kopi Luwak and Quiet Canary available, these web addresses, like they, they weren't active very long. So they would stay up for maybe three, four days, and then they would take them down and wouldn't respond for anything for a couple weeks. So it seemed like they were taking a lot of effort to just go up for a little bit of time, get in wherever they needed, and then take everything down and just wait. So I think they were trying to be as stealthy as possible just to avoid detection. Managed Defense found this as part of one of their proactive like threat hunting campaigns. And what we noticed was there was a bunch of systems that were compromised with what looked like USB malware. And when we clustered this as UNC4191, we noticed some really interesting things about it. When we looked at all of the organizations that they targeted, which was a pretty broad range of organizations in public and private sectors across the world, the really interesting thing that we noticed was most of the physical systems were located in the Philippines. Welcome back to another episode of the Defenders Advantage podcast, our first Threat Trends episode for this year. Joining me, I have once again, returning after a a brief hiatus, Tyler McClellan and John Wolfram, to talk about two recent blogs that we put out, Turla, A Galaxy of Opportunity, and Always Another Secret, Lifting the Haze on China Nexus Espionage in Southeast Asia. Tyler, John, great to have you back. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks. Good to be back. So the reason why we're doing these two, uh, we're, we're talking about the activity in these two blogs, and this was sort of unplanned, but we had two recent blogs that, among other things, different regions of activity, different targets, but they shared a commonality in the usage of USB as an infection vector. So that's one thing I thought we'd be interesting to kind of explore as a TTP by looking at a little bit more in depth. And I encourage people to go read the blogs. There's there's a lot more detail, certainly on the technical side, than we'll we'll get into here. Um, but explore this as a as a trend by looking at the two sets of activity. I also say that when we did the rush episode with both of you guys last year, some people may have noticed. I think that there's actually a comment on uh, one of the posts for that that episode of Hey, how come you guys didn't touch on on Turla? Well, we didn't ignore Turla, but it wasn't quite ready at the time for for prime time. So. Some research that still need to be done. So let's jump into that one, I think, maybe first. You both worked on this, but Tyler, over to you. I guess before we get into the actual story of what we saw recently with Turla, who is Turla? What's the sort of background? What are they known for? You know, What are some of the, the major operations that come to mind with this group? Sure, yeah. So Turla, uh, we think, is the uh, Russia's federal security service, the FSB. They've been around for quite a while. They're one of these groups that have just been there since the start of cyber going way back. There's definitely some big notable operations that they've done. So Agent BTZ, which is uh, spreading on USB keys, and that uh, ended up compromising a a military system in the Middle East that's actually belonged to the US military back in 2008. That's one of their bigger operations where they're, they're just putting malware everywhere, and it just ended up in interesting places for them. And then later on, 2014, we had uh, Snake, which is just another name for Turla, targeting MFA militaries, doing some PDF exploits back then, along with some uh, strategic web compromises or watering holes uh, with some flash exploits. And then where it gets even more interesting is, is kind of this more recent activity. 2019, NCSC released an advisory that talked about them actually 
reusing some accesses uh, that Iranian APT had. So going into some of their web shells and getting access to victims there. And this part really parallels into what we talked about in the new Turla blog is that they actually went into some of the C2s and sent down Turla malware to some of those Iranian victims. And this is a group that, you know, when you think about the, the pantheon of Russian threat actors, OG Russian group, primarily, I mean, from what we've observed, you know, strictly espionage focused, you know, doesn't seem to have the destructive mandate we see from some other groups or dabble in the, the IO or disinformation space. This is just pure, you know, good old fashioned espionage activity for the most part, right? Yeah, this is definitely more of a, you know, classic uh, SIGINT type group where they're, they're doing a bit of like mass collection and then some, you know, tar more targeted uh, activity against specific things that uh, are interesting to them. So a lot of military, MFA, and, and government targeting mostly. So I think maybe where we should start with this story in, in terms of the recent activity we've seen from them is Andromeda Malware. So what is Andromeda Malware and how does it factor into to this particular campaign? Yeah, so Andromeda, or also known as Gamaru, it's a, a botnet backdoor. So it uses plugins, so the operators could actually send down plugins that could do remote desktop, keystroke capturing, or back at that time, it was more of a browser saved credentials that they would be targeting. But in 2017, there was a big international takedown and most of the domains for that were sinkholed. But now what we're seeing over the last year is some of those domains have expired and have been available for re-registration. And that's kind of where Turla picks up the story. So we think back in January, 2022, they register at least one domain. And then later on in August, we soon pick up another domain. There are signs of some other domains pointing to the same infrastructure. And some of them are not expired. So it's not really clear exactly uh, what the overall thing that they're doing there is, if they're buying them or if they're manipulating that RU registry to sort of have some domains point to where they want them to. But essentially, they've taken over this Andromeda botnet that uh, you know, this malware has been around since uh, 2013. The specific hash that we're talking about in our blog, it's actually been on VirusTotal since 2013. So it's been out there propagating itself on USB keys and affects the system. Then you put a new USB key in and it's gonna copy itself onto that USB and it just continues spreading. So even within this organization that we are looking at, we probably ended up with about four different systems that were infected with Andromeda. Though as we can get into only Turla, malware ended up on one system. So they're super selective, even within uh, an attractive organization that we're talking about here in Ukraine. And I think important to note, I mean, you, you referenced this when you're talking about it being, you know, commodity malware, botnet, the majority of infections that historically to date that people would be familiar with, with Andromeda infections would be useful for and primarily used by cybercrime activity, right? It's not something that necessarily if you're hunting for cyber espionage activity from a group like Turla that you would necessarily be looking for, or that detection for Andromeda would lead you to believe that would be, you know, to date an infection that could result in Turla being on your system. Right. Yeah. It's really just commodity type malware. So really focusing on financial information. So banking logins and things like that. A lot of the Andromeda activity is sort of the pre ransomware time. So it's really just trying to steal whatever money they can get from accounts that uh, you have access to. So where does the story go from there? Because they, so they're now tapped into this large scale, you know, botnet, as you mentioned, it's spread via USB infection, but it's, it's a large, uh, large, you know, network of infected systems and, and hosts. 
they're looking for, and I guess you see this in a lot of, of activity, you know, strategic web companies is an example of this, where there's a very wide net that's cast, and then they're looking for specific targets of interest within that. How does that kind of play out in the story? Yeah, so the USB infection actually happened back in December 2021. And it, you know, Andromeda was on there, it was potentially infecting other USBs that it came into contact with on that system. And it just sat dormant trying to connect out to these domains. So the C2s for this particular sample, they were taken over by Turla starting in January, uh, but not much happened. So we're not really clear, like it would have tried to connect out to their infrastructure, but they didn't take any action at that point until September, when over a two-day period, they sent the Kopi Luwak, which is a JavaScript-based system profiler down. And it starts to collect a bunch of system information, you know, what's running on there, uh, the users and files and things like that. Uh, it sends that up. And then after those two days, then Quiet Canary came down, which is the backdoor that allows that interactive access. And so what what do you make of that? I mean, I guess there's now we're starting to get to kind of the, the speculation uh, piece of this. But I mean, is this something where they've got this sort of large scale botnet of infections and, and potential hosts of interest? They're kind of going through, checking the traps, find some stuff of interest. And then they decide, you know, as the, you know, in the case of Ukraine, the Ukrainian entity that was targeted, you know, maybe now that there's a reason to, to go dig further on particular targets. Yeah, so they went pretty quick into data theft, like capturing documents and things like that. But that that profiling that happened before, as we were watching, like once we were aware of the um, the web addresses where they had uh, Kopi Luwak and Quiet Canary available, these web addresses like they, they weren't active very long, so they would stay up for maybe three four days, and then they would take them down and it wouldn't respond for anything for a couple weeks. So. It seemed like they were taking a lot of effort to just go up for a little bit of time, you know, get in wherever they needed and then take everything down and just wait. So I think they were trying to be as stealthy as possible just to avoid detection. And I think some of that profiling that happened was probably looking to, uh, you know, avoid executing on places where they were going to be monitored. Where we were sitting, we had just come in, so they may have actually profiled the victim prior to us having coverage there. So it might have just been we got lucky in the sense that they checked, we weren't there, uh, and then sent down the their malware, and then we started monitoring and detected this. So what do you make of this operation overall in terms of the the TTPs that they were using here? Obviously, no stranger to, to utilization of, of USB as an infection vector, going back to the Agent BTZ days, or piggybacking off of infrastructure. You mentioned, you know, I think the the notable um, case of where they were, was it, I think it was APT 34 was the, the Iranian, uh, group that they were leveraging their, their infrastructure and compromises to deploy their own malware to. So, I mean, we see some of like, I guess the same TTPs where definitely a focus on stealth, leveraging what works, leveraging, you know, areas where there's maybe an infection that can piggyback off of. But I guess when you look at this activity in comparison to, to previous Turler operations, what stands out, what looks different, what seems to be consistent? Well, what seems to be consistent, I, I think, is they're trying to, you know, skip the, those initial steps of, you know, having to compromise victims. So like we saw with the um, accessing the Iranian C2s and sending their malware down to those victims. This is really, really similar to that in the sense of they're essentially taking over C2s for criminal malware and accessing those victims. It is, you know, it is pretty opportunistic, like like they've done previously with the the watering holes and those strategic compromises. You know, they're just hoping to get lucky, but with enough volume, they can they can get interesting targets. So I think 
that that side of things really fits with um, you know consistency across their past operations and you know very similar to to you know what they've done in the past. I think where things start to change a little bit is this you know taking a almost like a mass malware commodity you know Andromeda and then taking over that infrastructure. I think is what was really novel about this because it's. You're not, you know, you're not going for already interesting targets that, uh, you know, say that Iran was looking at. You're looking at really just everybody that's plugging USBs and getting infected. So I think it, it was kind of smart on their part to go, like, say, to a like a wider potential cache of victims uh, using this. I think it's interesting, like, because we haven't seen too much of Turla since about 2020, and I think, you know. They haven't stopped hacking, but they've done really well to you know shift from these really wide ranging activities with Agent BTC. You know they would just be spreading all over the place to you know these really really focused operations where they're they're going after a very small targeted set of victims. Yeah, and interesting to think about how, given again their their nexus, we believe to FSB, how this potentially plays into going back to our earlier podcast uh, that we did with you guys. How this plays into the to Russia's overall strategy, uh, or maybe even lack thereof, right? Independent government security services within Russia, kind of pursuing different avenues to gain information advantage in Ukraine and the surrounding region amongst the various parties. You know, what? How does this kind of fit into that that overall kind of piece? I'm not asking you to answer that necessarily because that's a broad question. But if you have any thoughts on that, by all means. Yeah, well, I think I mean it, Turla just continues to do their their espionage mandate. So you know, despite you know. GRU doing their destructive operations, like FSB is just, you know, holding their line as far as uh, doing the espionage and just collecting uh, against their government targets. And presumably they're doing it in other places that we're not necessarily seeing. I think that they're not necessarily affected by the the conflict with uh, Ukraine as much. You know, they would be collecting against Ukraine just, uh, you know, as a priority target, I think, in general. That's a good point. Well, let's uh, let's spin the globe and, and go to a different region and bring John in here, who's been waiting patiently uh, off to the side. And let's talk about the uh, the second topic in this examination of where we've recently seen USB infections pop up. And this is with Onk4191. So, John, tell us about Onk4091. Yeah, so this was a pretty interesting campaign. So we identified this earlier in the year. And so Mandiant Managed Defense found this as part of one of their proactive like threat hunting campaigns. And what we noticed was there was a bunch of systems that were compromised with what looked like USB malware. And um, when we clustered this as UNC4191, we noticed some really interesting things about it. One that, you know, everything kind of led us to believing that this was a an espionage group most likely with a chinese nexus um so that was kind of the conclusion we made but what what we noticed was when we looked at all of the organizations that they targeted which was a pretty broad range of organizations in public and private sectors across the world the really interesting thing that we noticed was most of the physical systems were located in the philippines and this is an actor, I mean, this is, a, this is a new unk for us, so this is not one that we immediately were able to link kind of to a known APT or a temp group or a larger unk cluster that's been around for a while. But there was some evidence, I think, as this progressed of where the potential sponsorship or origin um, yeah. to this threat group lies. 
Yeah, so, you know, that's something that we've been talking about for a while is, um, are there any links that we can identify to any known groups that we track or maybe other organizations track? One of the ones that we've primarily been focusing on trying to link this UNC to is Tempex. So Tempex is a another Chinese espionage group, and they've used USB widely as a in, initial infection vector. Um, the primary difference between those campaigns that Tempex likes to conduct is that they primarily rely on SOGU, um, also known as PlugX, for like kind of that initial payload. And what we notice here with UNC4191, they were using three brand new malware families that we'd never seen before to, to kind of conduct this campaign, which was pretty interesting for us. Yeah, so walk us through what happens after, you know, you see the, the initial USB infections. Where does this go? How do the actors move laterally, escalate pr privileges? Where do they go from there? Yeah, so there's three primary code families that this uh, infection chain pretty much relies on. So we have Miscloak, Darkdew, and Bluehaze. Those are the, the three primary malware families that we see. And kind of the way that this play out, plays out is you have a USB drive, you know, gets plugged into a, a user's device. and they execute a legitimate signed binary from the like root directory uh, folder of that USB. And what we noticed was the names of those EXEs were changed to removabledrive.exe or usbdrive.exe. And what those were, were they're like legitimate um, EXEs. They're not malicious inherently, right? But what the actor was doing here was they're making use of DLL sideloading to basically kind of conduct this whole uh, execution chain. So what would happen was, is they would execute this legit EXE and it would sideload our miscloaked DLL uh, that was in the same, uh, same like folder structure, right? And so what would happen there, once that happened, miscloak would then in turn load a USB.ini file that uh, it was, that's the name of the file that was also in the same working directory. But what was interesting here is when we were doing the initial malware analysis on miscloak, the PDB for this file was really, really interesting. A lot of times you don't, you don't really see PDBs in, in, in malware samples, especially when you assess that they're an APT because that's stripped out in the development process. In this case, go ahead. I was going to say, and, and for the folks that aren't aware, what is a PDB? Yeah, so it's the uh, the project database for a malware sample. And in this case, uh, it was really interesting because not only did they have some Chinese characters that translated to disk hijacking in there, they had APT in the in the in the folder um, name. So it was G Project APT Chinese characters that translated to disk hijacking, and then it ended in shellcode.b. PDB, which was pretty nice. You know, they kind of took some of the work out for us, which was helpful. But it was it was pretty interesting to see that. And then as kind of the infection chain continues, the USB.ini file, it's actually an encrypted DLL that when it's decrypted, it's what we call Darkdo. And that file is capable of infecting removable drives. Uh, and it's really interesting because it behaves differently, whether it's on a, executing from a USB or if it's on an actual system. So when it's first executed, if it's executed from the USB, the first thing it does is it looks to infect the host that it's plugged into. So it'll work to basically transfer all of the files that are on the USB over to a new folder on the infected host and then execute another um, legitimate exe. If it's ran not from removable media, like from an actual host, 
it will scan the system every 10 seconds looking for removable drives by enumerating all of the volumes from A to Z. And if one is found, it infects it, which is pretty interesting. So we clearly have a focus here on USBs, and this is what that malware is designed to do. Yeah, this malware is designed to infect any USBs that are on a host or the host itself, and then kind of continue this execution chain. It does something really, really specific at the end, but the focus is definitely on uh, spreading. So going back to our Turtle example that we just went through, you know, one of the challenges I guess you have if you're approaching an operation like this, um, as the adversary, you've got a large wide net, you know, you have the, the malware that's spreading, propagating via USB, you're casting a larger net, but then you got to go back and identify targets of interest. So what did we see in terms of like follow on stages of malware? Was that kind of similar to the turtle example, like a much smaller range of targets? Or in this case, did we see, you know, a lot of those targets that were affected with the initial malware also get the secondary stages? Yeah, so the kind of the way that this whole thing wraps up is that the final malware blue haze, it'll um, once it's executed, it'll create persistence on the host, and then it actually uses a renamed netcat binary to create try and create a reverse shell. Nothing super slick here. Uh, it's pretty bare bones in terms of what it does, but it's you know it's effective. You're creating a reverse shell back out to a C2 that you control. The C2 is hard coded though, so. The, I mean, as far as we know, you'd have to manually update the chain. But what's interesting here is because of when we were kind of looking at this campaign and based on like analysis of some of the compile times, the malware can potentially go all the way back to September 21. So we didn't actually see any of the follow on reverse shell interaction, unfortunately, based on the age of the activity. And that could be the gap in when, you know, the campaign was really hot. Uh, and this, we might be just catching some of the, like the infection as it spreads, or it could be short log retention. Gotcha. And did we have, you know, you mentioned obviously a lot of the targets in this ended up being within the Philippines. So we have very sort of, you know, tighter geographic distribution. Um, but was there any sort of within that, you know, certain sectors or types of targets that they're, the actors seem to be more interested in within that, that regional context? It was pretty wide. They, you know, I think that that was one of the really interesting things here was that, you know, some of the Chinese actors definitely have their focus on like what they go into, like, you know, like APT40 really likes their maritime targeting, APT41 kind of mixed bag, but they really like US Gov. This was pretty wide. We couldn't really hammer down on one specific sector or one specific like type of organization because we had a mix of public and private. We had a mix of like, different industries, but what kind of came back to it was that, you know, the Philippines were definitely the primary target here, which that is in line with Chinese targeting of the Philippines as like a, as a collection target, you know, it's very much in line with uh, Chinese political interest and commercial interest to target the Philippines. So it does kind of stack up. Yeah. And that's been a, a target both, you know, for some of the PLA groups that are aligned to that theater. Scott, Scott Henderson, forgive me, I, will, I can't remember which specific one that is, if that's the Southern Theater or not. And But also a lot of MSS groups, you know, have historically had a, a focus there as well. So, right. you know, no surprise, I guess, you know, from, from that being a country of interest. Right. And they just had a really big election. Yeah, another good, another good point in there. I remember seeing a lot, and I, I think there's still, it's still pretty frequently, but a lot of uh, naval exercise lures seem to, in, in particular, always pop up around the Philippines or naval exercises that they're involved in. 
Yeah, that that is like the one thing is like I wish we because there's like the compiled timestamps dating back to September 2021. I would be really interesting to see some of the initial target sets because that could potentially give you an indication on you know where these were introduced because kind of unlike Turla, you know, this isn't a case where Turla is like kind of co-opting like crime infrastructure, right? Like this malware had to be introduced at some point by the adversary. So I'd, I'd be really curious where that happened. Yeah. So that's a good segue into kind of zooming back from all of this and looking at both of these operations. Obviously, you know, different regions of origin, different target sets, different ways in which USB was leveraged here. What are your some some thoughts of that? You know, Tyler, jump in here as well. Like, you know, as this as an infection vector, I was I went back and looked at our our Mtrans report from last year, and and USB wasn't even listed as one of the initial infection vectors. I think it was in that that smaller other category. Yeah, um, I don't know if we're going to see that on this year by the numbers. Stay tuned. Mtrans coming out this year, but this is I feel like something that you know, particularly within infosec, we don't think about as much just because it seems. Um, you know, like the, the concept of, of picking up a, a USB that you don't know where it came from and plugging into your system seems very ludicrous as someone that works in, in InfoSec and like, who would do that? Um, but, you know, I think both of these examples, amongst other things, prove the point that this is still like a very viable way for adversaries to kind of leverage gaining access to networks and, and systems. So I guess looking at both of these operations, what are some of the takeaways you have of just this as a TTP and trend? Yeah, I think from my perspective, I hadn't seen USB malware in, in a while, but this kind of brought it back to the forefront of my mind because it's it's definitely still an effective TTP when you talk about what you could potentially use it for, like kind of bridging like air gap networks. Like that's, you know, that's still something that like adversaries are going to be trying to do. So, you know, it's still at the forefront of my mind of being an effective TTP. I think especially with like the turtle stuff people were i think i saw on twitter a couple of times people were like oh like usb malware still thing and it's like yeah it is and it, you know it's it's still effective we have obviously two different adversaries here that are definitely have some pretty solid capabilities and you know they're still using it i i think we'll continue to see it you know we did see tempex you know coming back into the fold with some usb malware so I think that, you know, it's not going away anytime soon. Um, so just, you know, disable auto run, dis- like disable remove media, please. Super glue your uh, USB port shut. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I think it's still effective now. Like Microsoft turned off the auto runs generally like back in like 2009. But the way that you're being prompted now is it's still defaults to execute rather than the do nothing. So, you know, users are just kind of hit OK. They used to hit and enter. You know, they're going to execute that malware probably more often than not uh, when they insert that USB and get that pop up. Yeah, I think it definitely like highlights the creativity and continued utilization by adversaries sometimes of techniques or tactics that we don't think are as widespread. Or maybe we just, you know, frankly, it's a, you know, a bias of just not seeing that happen as much um, that we tend to forget that it still could be used. And um, I think that's something definitely to, to look for you know, more in, in future operations if we see. It. I mean, the China example, you know, with with Ankh 4191, I think is interesting kind of given the trend we've seen in the last five or so years where they've shifted to to moving kind of further up the information supply chain and going after targets that allow them access into a brighter array of, you know, final targets. So MSPs, telecoms, the widespread targeting of public facing, you know, applications, stuff like that. So is this like part of that larger strategy? Does that, you know, in certain regions fit kind of the use case of of casting a wide net 
it'll be interesting to see that. Well, John, Tyler, thank you for stopping in to talk about this uh, great research. Again, two fantastic blogs. We'll include them in the show notes. People should check them out for a lot more that we didn't get into today. Glad we were able to finally close the loop on the Turler stuff and look forward to, to having you guys back on uh, at some point and hearing more about some of the research that I'm sure you'll be uh, getting up to this year. Yeah, thanks a lot. Look forward to coming back next time. Yeah, thanks so much for having us back. Take care.